Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, Heavenly Affection. As Christians, we all know that we are supposed to be loving, charitable, and caring, but oftentimes the circumstances and relationships we face do not breed a selfless, overflowing love and affection for people. So where are we to find the affection that we are called to show to our friends and our enemies? Well, it isn't found in trying to conjure it up from a bunch of self-effort. Rather, it comes from receiving that affection from the heart of God and then allowing it to flow out from us to those around us. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This message, I don't know how intimately it will touch me or you. It has the potential to strike a very deep chord in me because there's a lot of aches and pains surrounding this particular topic that um, intellectually, as I'm putting this message together, uh, I'm not shedding many tears, but as I give it, I have no idea what's going to happen. So uh, we're sort of on this journey together because I have a hunch that in this room, there's a lot of you that are going to identify with this process that we're going to walk through. There's something that is almost shocking when you find out about it. And that is that God feels that he actually has affection for us. For God so loved the world that he gave, his only begotten son. And we know that, and yet I think it's still startling when we discover that he's not just carrying forth a list of rules and commandments and then measuring us against it and finding us to have failed and then casting us off or finding us to be clothed in Christ. And so he says, all right, you're on the right side. You're with the sheep. You're with the goats. All right, sheep, come on in. But there, there is an affection, and it's a paternal affection, a fatherly affection that is otherworldly. And this affection is supposed to be made manifest in us. It's supposed to be in and through the church that this is revealed And that's why this message touches us at a certain level, because some of us have never understood the heavenly affection from the Father to us. You know, I've been around people in my life, and I'd probably fall into the category of it, where they know intellectually that God loves them. So if someone said, so theologically, if you're going to be accurate, does God love you? Yes, he does. And so you know the right answer, but then one day something happens, and you are in a broken state, and someone comes up to you, you don't even see them because your, your eyes are clouded with tears, and someone puts their arm around you and whispers these words into your ear, God loves you. And then suddenly you sob all the more, and you understand it at a deeper level. Why? Why is it that it's so hard for some of us to understand that affection and that it's directed towards us? Well, part of that has to do with the fact that In and amongst the saints of God, we have not seen and understood that affection. We have felt on the outs, or we felt disconnected from it. And as a result, there can be a deep well of pain inside of us, and so it can sometimes be difficult to access a clear picture of the heavenly affection. Have you ever heard it said that a father and the way they treat their children is setting the stage and creating a template for that child when they first begin to understand truly that their father in heaven... Is a father as well. And they can then look at that father in heaven and either shy away and go, I don't know that I want to be hurt again. 
I was abused by my earthly father. And they have a tendency to pull away instead of draw near. If you had a great relationship with your father and there was a, a warmth and an entreatability, well, then that changes everything. But if you didn't receive that, it can greatly affect you. I'm going to read a chapter in the Bible to start off. And that's sort of a risky thing to do as a pastor. You're supposed to read a scripture, not a passage or a chapter. And so the intimate brush with the affection of God. Now, this isn't a chapter that's just gushing with emotion, and yet it is. This is God's heart expressed. It's Isaiah chapter 53. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Well, how is this a brush with the affection of heaven? Who's it talking about? Well, this is a messianic passage in Scripture. This is talking about Jesus. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible to showcase Jesus come to this earth. For God so loved the world that he sent forth his Son. And this Son suffered and died. What's he expressing to us? He's expressing the heavenly heart, the heavenly passion, the heavenly affection for us. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. One of the most extraordinary, amazing pictures of heaven's heart for you. And most of us are somewhat detached from it emotionally, though. We don't see it. We don't understand the sacrifice that God made for us personally. We see it in a theoretic sense. We see it in a historic sense. We believe that it happened, maybe, but we don't understand that it took place for us. The liquid of heaven. There is mention over and over and over throughout the Old Testament of a liquid. I know that sounds strange. But a fountain, a river, a stream that is going to break forth in Jerusalem. And I'm going to say to you very simply that, yes, it did break forth. There was a river that came cascading and gushing forth in Jerusalem. It happened 2,000 years ago. 
Now, I'm going to refer to it in a strange way. We're going to call it the liquid of heaven, because when I call it a river, you don't oftentimes see it for what it is. But there is a gush, there is something that has come forth, and the way God built us is that when we have affection, it streams forth, and it comes forth as a tear. And there is something about that that is symbolic for us to understand that affection and a liquid are associated. So I'm going to call it the liquid of heaven, and I'm going to refer to it as tears of affection, tears of joy, tears of mercy, tears of kindness, tears of empathy, tears of longing. You see, there's certain kinds of tears of pain and sorrow, like when you're caught for doing something wrong and you're disciplined for it, and you have a grief over the fact that you were caught. And it's called an earthly sorrow. But then there's a godly sorrow of repentance. But then this is a sorrow, not a sorrow, this is a tear or an expression or an affectionate crying. Have you ever seen it where long-lost friends, long-lost relatives see each other at a distance? And they immediately, it's like tears spring forth in their eyes. It's not a tear of sadness. It's a tear of joy. There's a tear of affection. It's a deep well of feeling. And it's a good feeling. But it comes forth with liquid. What's missing? I know this seems like a strange detour from what I'm talking about. However, this is what the whole message is about. I'm talking about affection. But now I'm going to strike sort of the chord that God is striking in me. Why do we all feel so vulnerable in the church? You're sort of like, what does that have to do with affection? Well, that has a lot to do with it. You know that most of the pain in my life has come forth in the church? Uh, It's not what you're supposed to say when you get up in front of the church. It's not you that did it. However, you're symbolic. You're just sort of sitting in a church, therefore you're the church. I was telling the students this past week that I was making, I I was doing a Moody podcast, uh, and so I had this weekly Moody podcast, it was three minutes long, and in one of them I was talking about the dangers of the modern media, this is a while ago, and someone got back with me and said, who are you to talk? You're part of the media. It's like, what? I have a three minute clip. How does that make me part of the media? Suddenly I'm part of the media? Well, how do you think I feel as a pastor? You know, pastors have done more harm in this generation than good, it seems. And now I'm a pastor? Yeah, you're one of them, Ludi. Well, I want you to realize that, yes, though I may be in your mind one of them, I'm also one of you. I felt what you feel. Some of you don't even like being in a church building. This is really strange. I'm, I'm pastoring a church in a church building. I don't like going into church buildings. Why is that? Well, if you walked a day in my shoes, you'd probably understand. You don't know who crucified Jesus? It was the equivalent of the church. It was the religious folk. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the ones that controlled the religious system. The religious system historically has been a very, very dangerous place. And yet here we all are. So either you just got up the guts, and maybe it's supporting one of your family members today. It's like, all right, I'll go into a church just today but it's for you. It's because I love you. And maybe some of you are just risking it, saying there has to be something more. That's where I'm at. You see, my natural tendency is to brace myself when I'm around the church. You see, you know what the church is supposed to do? It's supposed to open up and embrace. And yet when you've been stabbed multiple times, when you've opened your arms, you have a tendency to self-protect. And that's what we're talking about in this message, because when all of us begin to self-protect, 
and go like this when we're greeting each other? I mean, because you can still hug and self-protect. Because it's not just the hug that I'm talking about. It's opening up your life. It's making yourself vulnerable. What's missing? Why do we all feel so vulnerable in the church? I'm going to go through four classic places of safety. It's sort of hard to argue this list. A mother's womb. These are the safest places on earth. A mother's womb. Think about it. If you could go anywhere and make sure that you would be secure, a mother's womb is the perfect place. It's like designed by God for security. Everything about it is perfect. It's balanced. There's food there. There's protection there. A marriage. You know what? You enter into covenant with someone, and they have your back. You have their back. Sickness and health, whether living in plenty or in want, it doesn't make any difference. They vowed to you that they will never leave you. There is a covenant bond till death do us part. Oh, talk about security. You can always know that they'll have your back. You can always trust them. A family. Can you think of a more beautiful spot for security and safety? I mean, you can always know as a family that if anything goes wrong in your life, your family will stand up and say, get your grubby hands off of them. I mean, it's family, isn't it? The church! Oh, what a model! God has built the ultimate protection device. And so those that are hurting, those that are weak, those that are lonely can come here and they will find refuge. And some of you are looking at this list going, why? Because that's a fact. What I just mentioned to you is God's order. This is God's plan. These are the four things that he built into his creation as the safest places on earth. What should you expect of a mother's womb? Well, let's go through the quick list. Life. I mean, you wouldn't be there if there wasn't life provided to you. That's the whole reason you're there. Pop, boom, you're there. <laughs> Protection. The whole thing is built to protect a little baby. Nurturing. There's a little umbilical cord. It goes right in your belly button and feeds you. There is food and there's a nurturing. Love and affection. I mean, if, I mean, if you're in the womb, I've, I don't remember what it was like being in the womb. But I know what it's like being on the outside of the womb, caring about what's inside the womb. And if you're a parent, what do you start to do? You see a little kick. And so you put your hand there. You pray over that little one. You whisper to it. You say, you need to get familiar with this voice. Daddy loves you. And you sing a song. You read scripture. I mean, hey. This is love and affection and closest. Can you get any closer than a womb? I mean, this is oneness. This is closeness. Trust? Of course. You know, why would you not trust? You're in your mother. And is there anyone on earth that could love you more than a mother? This is the ultimate place of confidence. My mom will take care of me. Assurance. Direction. Do you know that when it comes time to come forth, that the, the womb is even set to direct and maneuver the little baby into position? No, no, little one. No, no. We aim this way. <laughs> Correction. That's exactly right. No, no. Let's turn over. This is where you come out. Pushing. You know that the womb is even there to push you forward in life? Onward! Go! But it's a safe pushing. It's strange, but it's a safe pushing. Okay, some discomfort, sure. <laughs> and then what comes forth? 
even a greater breath of life. You see, this is a womb, and this is the way God designed it. It's safe. A mother's womb, it is currently the most dangerous place on earth for a little baby. Statistically, on earth today, the most dangerous place on earth for a baby is a mother's womb. The statistical analysis of it would show that it would probably be safer for a baby in Haiti, on the streets, than maybe in a mother's womb. That is not right. What has happened in our world? Marriage is the place of the greatest betrayal and breaking of trust. Family, the place of greatest pain and the deepest wounds. The church, the place of abused authority and the open floodgates of disillusionment and pain. And you're wondering why we hold back. You see, if you've grown up in the same culture I have, with the same abuses, the same distortions, I understand. You see, you know that I'm not offended if someone says they don't trust the church. I don't take it personally. I could stand with them, put my arm around and go, you know what? I understand. I really do. I understand. However, I do not accept that that needs to be the final statement of that which ushers out of our souls. I am interested in return to the way God intended a church to be. Uh, I can't do this myself. I'm, I'm aching. I have bleeding wounds too. And so I have to walk through the same thing all of you do. I have been harmed by the church of Jesus Christ. And yet, that's why this message is so important. A mother's womb, marriage, family, and church. What do these four places have in common? They only operate properly when there is vulnerability and trust. You know, it just does not work if a little baby does not accept the womb. If a little baby is saying, get me out of here, you know, it's actually harmful for the baby. If the baby wants out too quickly, it actually is harmful for the baby. The baby has to trust. The baby has to rest. And, well, you go to marriage. Without vulnerability and trust, it just doesn't work. You could have a business relationship in marriage, and many of us probably understand what that means. However, vulnerability and trust are what make a marriage thrive. It's like the soil in which the beauty of it grows. And how about family? Vulnerability and trust, essential. Eh, the church, mm -hmm. vulnerability and trust. Think I'm going to trust these people? You've got to be kidding. I'm not that stupid, Eric. This is the church. You know what the church is responsible for most of the crimes today in the religious world? I mean, there's no way you're going to get me to trust them. I'll be around them because I'm not supposed to forsake the gathering of the believers. Well, that's the only reason. I'm just being biblical. But I'm not going to trust them. I'm not going to be vulnerable to them. You've got to be kidding. When the places of safety go wrong, a mother's womb, it's called miscarriage and abortion. Marriage, it's called separation and divorce. Family, it's called emotional disassociation and abandonment. The church, it's called cut off from the splugnonian affection. Yeah. <laughs> you see, what you expected me to say was something different. <laughs> I'm going to teach you about that, don't worry. I just wanted to have a little shock value in the message. You know what's interesting is most people, when they think about what happens when the church goes wrong, is people are kicked out of churches, there's discipline in the church, there's excommunication. Actually, that's when the church is healthy. I know that sounds funny. But you know the church protects itself? 
When a family's protected, it doesn't just allow in all the junk from society to just hang out in the living room. You know that when a family is healthy, it kicks out that which doesn't belong in the family? It actually is preserving and protecting and correcting. I know that sounds very funny. But the real problem, when we have a breakdown of the safe place of the church, it's because we've been cut off from something. Something has been broken down in the church. And I have a big name for it, which I will acquaint you with. Splognonian affection. But we could say heavenly affection. The heavenly affection, the vulnerability and trust amongst us is lost. If you came in here and none of us cared about you, did you know that the church would hurt you without even trying? You see, there will be people that will visit a church, even like this one, and no one will think to say, how are you today? You know that that person is very vulnerable and they're cut off from something? And though they can be so close to people that are even healthy, they feel a wound. And if there's already a knife in them, what, is that ha what happens? It pushes it deeper. And something needs to change in and amongst us. If all of us come and we're thinking about us, it's like I, someone needs to reach out to me. Well, imagine we have a whole church full of people. Like, you need to prove yourselves, church, that you're not the previous church that I had. What happens? Well, we just repeat the previous church that you had. A whole bunch of self-centered individuals looking for their needs to be met, as opposed to all of us turning outward and saying, you know what? I'm not going to think about me. I'm going to think about them. And if I allow this affection to come through me, well, did you know the church begins to change immediately? Splogon. Isn't that one of the ugliest words you've ever heard in your life? Splogon. And yet it's one of the most beautiful, it's terrible that in the Greek we have to have such a bad word for it. No one's going to want to write a song about that. Because <laughs> look at what it means. God's tenderest affections. It's not just God's affections, it's the tenderest version of them. It's the splogon. It's his deepest and warmest mercies toward us who believe. Now, I've had a tough time this week attempting to create the metaphorical picture for this. Because when you start dealing with affection, and you're a guy, you know, the two don't always run together. And so, but at the strange, at the, at the same time, there's a strange mixture of what this is with what I understand as a man. And so, forgive me, women, for the fact that I'm going to use a very manly illustration for understanding these deep affections. The father peeking over the crib. There's a little baby. And I mean, they could have various names. It could be Hudson. It could be Harper. It could be Kipling. It could be Avi. The name could be Lily. It could be Reese. Just picking random names. But there's a crib, and there's nothing quite like the vulnerability, the beauty, the sweetness of a little helpless life. It is quite shocking as a parent to think that God just, he must have made a mistake to give this to me. I have no clue what to do. And what's funny is round two and round three, I still felt the exact same thing. God, I think there's a mistake here. I mean, I'm still stumbling around trying to figure out how to deal with one, let alone two, let alone three. And yet... There is such a beauty, such a peace of heaven that awakens in a father. It's hard to describe it. I don't know what it's like being a mother. That's why I'm limited in my range of motion for my illustrations here. But if any of you have been a father, you just sort of go over the crib. Because it's like we had a little, what do you call it, bassinet. 
And so it probably would have been a better peeking over the side of the bassinet. And you're just like a shadow over the bassinet. And what are you watching? You're watching your little one as they're sleeping. And what is it? There's like a tear that even wells in your eye as a father. And that's what I'm trying to say, that there is such an affection. And if you even come close to this as a father, imagine God's affection. That he is that overshadowing presence that delights in his little children. That little child isn't doing anything, not performing, not you know, living perfect righteousness out. They're just there. They're being who they are. And there is such a love and such an adoration from the Father. Tears, joy, and the ache of loving affection. It's hard to describe the Father ache, but it's an ache. And it's strange, like when someone says they grow up so quickly. Like classic quote, unquote, of parents. They grow up so quickly. And then guess who starts saying it? Eric does. You know, you always look at your parents like, I won't do that. And then you start doing it. Yeah, they grow up so quickly. There, I just said it. What am I doing? They do. It is really strange. But there's an ache whenever you think about that. It's like they're, Hudson's nine. Halfway through at 18, he's like, see you, Dad. I'm headed to the mission field. Ah, this is happening way too quick. And what happens? There's an ache. Why? Why is there an ache? It's not because I don't want him to grow up. I just love him. And I want to savor every minute. I want to take advantage. And the other thing is, when you feel like you're busy in life and you realize that your children need time with you and then you have the combo package of knowing that time is moving fast, the ache increases. And you're like, God, I want to take advantage of every little moment. I don't want one moment to go by unused and unsavored. It's a father ache. And so I'm going to refer to this as splogon, just so you can begin to catch the idea. This is splogon. This is something that's hard to describe, but it's liquid. There's a well of it inside. It's not a dry well. It's, it's liquid. It's full of something. And when it's deeply moved, there's little things that happen, like the Hallmark commercial type of a thing, where some Hallmark commercial of some father coming home from the, mil the war, and he walks in through the door, and there's his little child that comes running up. I mean, then Eric starts bubbling out. And there's this well that I identify with. I see it, I understand it, I know it. Splognon. The Father's tears, the liquid affection of the Father's heart, the stream of mercy, kindness, gentleness, and love. Introducing the Father's presence. This is a hard one for me. I was calling it the Father's leg, but I didn't quite say it. The Father's presence, it's like the shadow of the Father. Last week we talked about the shadow, the presence. And... So a child is in a time of need. A child is scared. Where does a child run? Runs straight into the father's presence, right up to the, the father's leg, and wraps his arms around it. Have you ever had it where someone comes over to the house, and it's like, oh, little one, I want to introduce you to so-and-so. And where do they go? They go hiding under the sh shadow of the parent's leg. You see, there's something about that that's security. It's a symbol of security. And... So I want to introduce you to this concept of the father's presence, the father's leg, the father's knee, the father's shadow. However we're going, whatever we're going to call it, this is the place where we go in a time of need. It's interesting because a father is so much bigger than a little child, so much more powerful. You know that a father could crush a little child? I mean, it sounds terrible to even bring it up, but a father is that strong. And that little child is truly that weak and that fragile. 
And yet, though the father is so much more powerful, the child will run unto the father. Even, like, have you ever seen it where the father, you know, is playing with him? It's like, you know, doing the old monster thing. And the child, where would they go? Straight into the father's presence. Why would you do that? Don't you see how big and goony-eyed he is right now? And yet, they know the heart of that father. Though our father is so massive, so sovereign, so big, when you know his heart, where do you go? You go straight to him. Though he be a consuming fire, where do you go? You go straight to him. You go to that shadow. Running to the cross. Accessing the heavenly father's presence. I'm going to try and walk you through a picture, and it's a picture of the gospel. What the gospel leads us to is the Father's presence, the Father's shadow, the Father's leg, the Father's knee, whatever you want to say at the right side of the Father, the heart of the Father, even the womb of the Father. If you want to say it that way, it's oneness with the Father. But how do you get there? In your time of need, where do you go? Well, the Bible says, come boldly into the throne room of grace. However, you have no access unto the throne room of grace. Because to enter the throne room of grace, the holy of holies in the heavenly realms where the Father sits, you must bear perfect righteousness in your behavior. You must be holy, holy, holy as he is holy, holy, holy. In other words, none of us has what it takes to enter. And so when we find ourselves in need, when we find ourselves in that dire circumstance, where do we run? How do we access the Father? We run to a very strange place. We run to the cross. I don't know if all of you know in here what the cross is. But the cross is a place of death. It's not a happy picture. It's a place of great danger. And yet, if you want to come to the Father and you want the Father's presence, you run to the cross. You see, what are we accessing when we access the Father? We're accessing the splogon of the Father. We're accessing, accessing that liquid of heaven. There is a well, and that well is for us, his children. And yet, we have been cut off from that well. And that's what sin has done to us. The Father loves us, and he wants to give of that well. And yet, when sin enters the picture, there's a separation. But because God so loves us and has so much splog on, he sends forth his Son to create a means to say, I know you can't get to me, but I'm going to make a way for you to get to me. And it's called the cross. The Father wants to get us to that well, to that splogon. Running to the cross, accessing the heavenly Father's presence. The church, that which is born out of the side of the last Adam. Now this is going to sound like I'm piecing a funny puzzle together because we just worked on this corner up here and then we went over here, we're working on this corner. Now I'm working on another corner. You're like, what, what are you talking about? The church of Jesus Christ was formed in a very, very specific place. It was formed out of a side. Do you remember where Eve was formed? So I, I said the last Adam. Remember the first Adam? How was Eve, the bride, formed? Well, she was formed out of the side of Adam. You know that the church, Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, the believers, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, is formed in the same way? It's formed out of the side. God put Adam to sleep and formed the woman from his side, bone of his bone, body of his body. God put Jesus to sleep and formed the bride from his side. Life of his life, splogon of his splogon. 
That well has been brought to us at the cross. And when you come unto the cross, there is a newness of life. And yet what you are given is you're not just bone of his bone or body of his body. You are splogon of his splogon. That affection of heaven that he had for you, guess what? It fills you. And now what's, in, what's inside of you? Splogon. Heavenly splogon. That tender mercy, that stream of mercy that was in the heavenly father finds its way into you. That's what the church is. Jesus Christ, we'll call him the splogon of the father. He's the carrying device of the splogon. He carried unto us the heart of the Father, the tender mercies of the Father, the tears of the Father made flesh and poured out like a drink offering for the ones God so loved. Could you imagine? Jesus is literally the carrying device. He's like a cup. And he's carrying, don't spill it. Don't spill it. That is precious. And Jesus literally comes and is poured out like a drink offering. The splogon of God is poured out so that we could live and know the splogon of God. The church, the vessel that catches the liquid splogon of the Father pouring out of the side of Christ and brims full and overflows with the tears of the Father and the deep affections of the Spirit. So Jesus dies. The last Adam goes to sleep. And do you remember? The soldiers were going through and in crucifixion they break the legs. And that's what speeds up the death. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. And so instead of breaking his legs, which the prophecies of the Messiah said that not a bone of his body will be broken. So if a bone of his body was broken, he wouldn't have been the Messiah. But when they came to him and were going to break his legs, they hesitated because he was already dead. And so the soldier took a spear and put it into his side. And what flowed out? Blood and water came gushing out of his side. I want you to hold on to that because we have some serious splog on right there. You know what it is oftentimes said by a physician is that for blood and water to come gushing out of a side, it means that very likely Jesus died, not even just from crucifixion, even though, yes, he died of crucifixion, but of a broken heart, a heart that literally exploded within his chest, which would explain what came out of his side. The affection of God poured out and given. What came out of Adam's side but a bride? What came out of Jesus' side but a bride? We were formed out of that. That blood, that water, that life of Jesus is what forms us. We are merely vessels. But when we come unto the cross in our dire time of need and we cling to the leg, what comes gushing out into this vessel? but the very splogon of heaven. The tears of the Father, the deep affections of the Spirit. The church, the body of Christ. The place in which the Splognonian River flows. So where does the river flow? Jesus is on the cross. The side is opened up, and out of his side comes forth blood and water. Out of that side flows forth the life of God, the splogon of heaven. What does it come out of? It comes out of the body of Christ. And when I say that, you're thinking of Jesus and his body on the cross. Now, in the New Testament, we are called the body of Christ. Answer this question. What 
flows out of the side of the body of Christ. When the body of Christ endures tribulation, when the body of Christ endures grief, when the, when the body of Christ is cut open, what comes out? What's inside of us? The same thing that was inside of Jesus. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. The same splogon that moved the Father's heart, that moved Jesus, that even imploded his heart. That same splogon, it's a river, it's a fountain that is opened up in Jerusalem. And we are the new Jerusalem. There is a fountain, the splogon, the deep affections of God that are meant to come gushing forth onto the world around us. Just as you've received mercy, show mercy. Just as you've received the tears of the Father over your bassinet, so you must give of that affection. He that believes on me, this is Jesus speaking, he that believes on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now the word belly is sort of an awkward one for us. It means innermost, the innermost man. When a spear strikes into Jesus, right here, this is called the innermost. And what flowed out of Jesus? Blood and water. In the Hebrew, blood means life. Blood water is living water. There's a blood water within us. It's the life of God. It's living it's our entire being. It's everything that has been overtaken by God Almighty. And as Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of our innermost man will flow rivers of living water. Not just out of his, but out of ours. Is that true of the body of Christ today? Are we as the body of Christ giving of the splogon of God the way that Jesus gave of the splogon of the Father to us? Is that what is marking us today? Remember how I said when there's a breakdown of the safe places, what happens in a mother's womb? There's miscarriage and abortion. What happens in a marriage? Well, there's a breaking of trust and there's separation and there's divorce. What happens in a family? Well, there's abuse of all sorts of kinds. There's pain and wounds at the deepest levels. What happens in the church? We're cut off from the Splognonian affection. We're cut off from the river. You see, when we're cut off from the river, we wither up and we die. We are meant to not just come to the cross and receive the river, but then we are meant to allow the river to come through us and change the world around us. Splogon starts with God. Through the splogon of mercies of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. So God has splogon of mercies. And who has brought them to us? The day spring from on high, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has brought us the Splogon of God Almighty. Splogon is not only for God. Paul says, For God is my record how greatly I long after you all in the Splogon of Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes the Splogon from the Father. And then what does Paul have? He's longing. He's aching inside. For who? His child? His little baby? Paul was single. He was not married. Yet he had children. Paul had Splogon. Paul was hanging over the bassinet of the church at Philippi, saying, oh, coochie-coo. Paul had a tender affection, paternal, fatherly affection. So as I'm going through this message this week, the question is, Eric, do you? Do you have a splogon of affection 
for those in your life that I've entrusted you as Paul had for Philippi, as I had for you, I have for you? It's a good question, isn't it? You know, there's moments when I want to run. I know it sounds very strange. There's moments I want to shut down the church. It'd be just easier to run a college. Church is, is dangerous. Church is, church is just rife for problems. It's people. It's humans. If it was cats and dogs, it'd be easier. I said the other day when we were meeting uh, some of the church staff, and I, and I said, uh, sheep. Why don't we just have sheep instead of humans? And they said, I've, uh, one of them said, I've worked with sheep. It's not that pleasant. No wonder God chose that as the illustration. Paul has splogon. And where does that splogon come from? It comes from the side of Jesus Christ. It's given to us. There's times when I want to run. And there's never really a time when I've taken it seriously to cut off from the body of Christ. I genuinely, even though I have to sometimes supersede and overrule raw human emotion... There is a heavenly yearning and affection for the body of Christ. I have a jealous love for the body of Christ to see it set apart and consecrated unto Jesus. I know he loves us, though at times I wonder why. I have had the longing to be a farmer. I know I've probably said that to you guys in the past. But that was my job that I felt probably would make the most sense. All right, people are miserable. This is my conclusion. This is quite a few years ago. People are miserable. What would be a job where I didn't have to deal with people? What's funny is I'm an extrovert. I love people. So you know when an extrovert comes to the point that they want to be a farmer, something pretty wrong has happened. (laughs) And yes, that something pretty wrong has happened in my life. I have been hurt at very, very deep levels by the church. And here I stand. I'm not a farmer, and I don't want to be a farmer. I want to be exactly what God has made me to be, and that is a caring device of his splogon affection. And I want to love you as Christ loves you. And what's amazing is instead of looking into my own pockets and say, God, I don't have it, I come start with the beginning, I say, I don't have it. So where do I come? I come to the cross. And what do I find? It's flowing freely here. We got a gusher. We got a gusher of splogon affection. There's no short shortage of it at the cross. Everything you could ever need, the life of God, the splogon of God. We are the bride. We are the splogon of splogon. His splogon, we are it. Just as Eve was bone of his bone and, and, and flesh of Adam's flesh. We are life of Christ's life and splogon of his splogon. We don't find it in us. We find it in him. And as a result, we can love and have affection in a way that is otherworldly. Splogonian affection is what we as the church wear. This is what it says in Colossians. Paul talking again. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, splogon of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Put it on. Wear it. It's like, where, how am I supposed to find this splogon? Where is it? It's at the cross. Have you come to the cross? Well, that's a symbol of death. I'm not too interested in dying. Well, unless you come to the cross and die and embrace it, you can't have the splog on. You can't put on unless you put off. You see, the cross is a symbol of turning away from your life, your first life, your first man, 
to become a second man, twice born. You come to the cross and you die. You grab a hold of the Father's legs by grabbing a hold of Christ's. You run in your time of dire need, your time of emptiness. I don't have it. You come to him. And what's opened up there? But a river. A river of Splogon has been opened up there. And you will find everything you could possibly need for life and godliness. Running to the Father. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As a child, bombs are going off outside, threats and You know, the the world may be falling apart, and what do we long for as the creation of God? Where's my father? Where's my father? I want to be where my father is. I want to be where my father is. But we're cut off. So what do you say? I want my father! Jesus Christ, the word, the messenger, from the father to us of his deep affections. Come unto me, and be ye saved. Come unto me, and come to the father. I am, when you see me, you will see the Father. When you come to me, you come to the Father. I am his emissary. I am his witness. I am that voice that calls. I'm the caring device of carrying everything that he longs to share with you. I carry it. For I and the Father are one. And so when we come unto Jesus, it's the equivalent of running unto the Father. First, we must cling to the cross. Crosses are splintery. Crosses are symbols of death. Crosses are places of mockery and revilement. At crosses, you die. So I'm going to speak it to you straight. First, you come and die. First, you come and lay down your life. You repent. You turn away from an old man, an old life. And you say, I want my father. Well then, Eric, if you really want your father, you say goodbye to your father, the devil. You say goodbye to the flesh that rules you. You say goodbye to the old life. Put off the old man and put on a new man. And you come unto the cross. We die to self. We are baptized into his death. Baptized means to be put into, to be immersed into. We are immersed into his death. When we embrace that cross, his death becomes our death. His work on that cross becomes our work. We share in that work when we turn unto it and cling. Second, we are washed by his splogon. You see... Jesus dies, we die in Christ. We are baptized into his death. The old man is crucified. And what comes out of his side? The splogon. What is that splogon for? Well, it cleanses. It forgives. It actually purges conscience. As we are forgiven, we are cleansed. Our consciences are purged. Have you ever had the splogon of God gush over your life? Clothe you in his righteousness. Dress you in his nature. So that you are now fit to approach the throne room of grace. Not in your stinkiness, but in his righteousness. Come unto the cross and die so that you can be drenched in the river of his blood. Third, just keep holding on, by the way. There's not a time to let go. Abide at this cross. At this cross you find life. And you could say, uh, at this cross I found death. Well, you found forgiveness, you found cleansing, you found purging of your conscience. Yes, but this is still a symbol of death. Watch closely. Watch closely what happens. It's so extraordinary. But when you cling to this cross and you remain there, that on washes over you. And what happens is that which was a symbol of death turns into the symbol of life. And pretty soon you realize you're holding on to the Father. I've been brought to the Father. How? How did I get here? 
by holding on to Christ. When you come unto Christ, he brings you unto the Father. How is that done? At the cross. The cross is the avenue by which we access the Father. We are baptized into his death, but we're also baptized into his life, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so when we are baptized into Christ, we are where Christ is. And where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father. Oh, where does that put us? By the way, elders and students, what is your position? If you're in Christ, that means you're where he is, and he is at the right hand of the Father. He has brought you to the Father. Keep holding on to that cross, and you find yourself holding on to the Father. Third, we are quickened by his splogon. We are raised again to newness of life. We become a new creation. Fourth, that which was once a symbol of death transforms into the throne room of grace. As we cling to the cross, we find that we are actually clinging now to the Father with full access unto the splognonian affections of the Father and his ready desire to shed abroad his mercies in and through our lives. The five rules of the splognonian river. Rule number one, this river in our life is supposed to flow from God into us and through us. So rule number one of this splognonian river, it must be kept free-flowing. You know that if you dam it up and it comes into you but doesn't flow outward, it actually harms you? You see, this river is not supposed to be dammed. It is meant to flow. So what does the enemy do? He gives us a thousand reasons plus one to dam it up and to not give it out. How about forgiveness? How many of us have come to the cross and received the splognonian affections of God, the splognonian work of God, and we are cleansed from our sin? But then we are unwilling to forgive others. It kills you. It doesn't work that way. If you do not allow that river to flow out, that mercy to flow through you, it actually harms you. Rule number two, this river must be kept pure. You don't allow trash and debris to get in this river. You don't allow mixture to get into it. The church of Jesus Christ in our modern day is famous for sticking in trash into the river. Try and dress it up a little. I mean, it's a little, I mean, blood and water, come on. I mean, that's, that's a little awkward. Let's float a little boat down in it as well. And so we want to stick other things into it that we think are dressing it up when in actuality what we're doing is we're diluting. We're marring. We are profaning the purity of what God is putting through us. The gospel is just the gospel. One of these days I'm going to give a sermon on what the world needs today. It's not modern techniques. It is not hip and cool Christianity. It is the splogon of God. They need the gospel straightforwardly. Don't give it to them sideways. Give it to them straight. They need Jesus Christ. It's that simple. And whether I look bucktooth in giving such a message, I do not want to be hip with this world and wave at them when they go to hell. I'd rather be hated by this world, but see as many as possible change and give up everything to come to Jesus Christ. Rule number three, the body of Christ must perpetually maintain water rights to this precious life source, even if in the past they have abused this privilege. There's water rights. This is, this is a strange one. This is where it starts to get a little sticky for us. You see, God has given you splogon. You know who has rights to that splogon? The church. It's called the body of Christ. They have rights. And so when they have need and they need water, they need splogonian affection in their life, guess what? They have rights as the body of Christ to the splogonian affection that is in you. And as a result, 
The body of Christ must perpetually maintain these water rights. When you start cutting off water rights and saying they're not deserving, well, I didn't ask you if they were deserving. You weren't deserving of the cross of Christ and the Splogonian affections of Jesus in the first place. So if we're starting to measure things based on deservedness, we're in dangerous territory. The body of Christ today, I would agree, in the sense of justice and equity, is undeserving, but that would include me as well. That includes all of us in here. We are undeserving of the Splagonian affections of Jesus Christ, let alone the body of Christ, to show us those tender mercies. All of us would be cut off if we start reasoning that way. It's not because they're deserving. It's because, by faith, they have accessed a right in the person of Jesus Christ and are now considered the body of Christ, and the body of Christ has right, water rights, to that river. Let it flow. Number four, a special access ramp must be built and maintained for the poor and weak. So, in a correct river, if we are going to maintain this river correctly of the Splogonian affections of heaven come to this earth in through the body of Christ, we make special provision for the poor and the weak amongst us. That they will have access unto this river in a way that the rest of us might not. You can say, that's unfair. It's God's economy. It's how it works. The weaker have greater access. And so as a result, we do not just think of it in a uh, humanitarian sense where it's just like those that contribute the most get the most out of it. Now, I'm not also trying to promote socialism here either. I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven. And that is that this river has access. And it's a greater access by those that are weak, those that are helpless, those that are orphaned, those that are widowed, those that are foreigners in the land. They have a special ramp. And it says, are you an orphan? Yes, I am. Well, come on in here. You see, the weak amongst us have special access. It's funny. If someone comes in a wheelchair in front of you in line, it doesn't look good, does it, when you say, hey! That's the same with the church of Jesus Christ. God says, special privilege. Your allotment of Splogon, your river, you make a special ramp for those around you to have access that are weak and in need of that in an extra measure. Rule number five, special bottles of this priceless water must be kept in special reserve to be supplied to those who hate, despise, and seek the river's harm. Now, you don't let them come and pollute the river, but you have a bottling factory. It's like a special stash that when they come into your life, you hand them a bottle of the river, and you give them the Splogonian affection. Say, this is reserved just for you. I'm so glad you stopped by as they spit on you, and you hand them the bottle of special reserve Splogonian water. You see, you dip into the river knowing that you'll be hated, knowing that this river is a threat to everyone on this earth. They don't want your love. They don't want your mercy. They don't want your Jesus. And so you dip in there with your special bottling company and bring it to them. I thought you'd appreciate this. Special, select version of the water just for those that hate the river. We love those that hate you see, this is actually part of the rules of the Splogonian River. You give of this river. This river is not meant to hoard. This river is meant to give. How you give it is very important, though. Testing the waters. Looking for the two ingredients to ensure authenticity. So if this truly is living water, I mean, there's water and there's living water. There's the real stuff and then there's this sort of wannabe counterfeit stuff. Have you ever noticed that when you hear that you're supposed to love 
as, the, as a church member or as the, a Christian, that you try and whip up love. You're supposed to be patient, supposed to be kind, and so you try and whip this up. That's a false version. That's not how it works. The world can do that. What we as Christians do is otherworldly. It can't be done by us. It's done by God through us. So testing the waters. If this really is the living river, well, there's a couple tests. This is like a litmus test, just to test it. So in our home, we use different terms. We have meanies and species. Uh, meanies, or like the devil, is a big meaning. Okay, so he would be a meanie. Those that hate Jesus, those that are mean to people, those that are bullies, they're meanies. Okay, that's just a term we use. And then you have species. And I, I spelled it this way because it's short for the word special, or it's a, a derivative of the word special. But if I put it in with a C, it would look like species. <laughs> so I spelled it this way, because I've never actually spelled it before, but species. So my children are species. That's what I call them. Are you one of my species? And, you know, even Gracie, my dog, is a specie, too. But uh, I, I have species in my life, okay? And that's a term. I have tons of terms, by the way. If I were to preach on all my terms, we could have a whole vocabulary, a whole glossary here. But so I'm introducing you to a couple of my terms, the meanies and the species, the worldly and the heavenly. The Splogonian River is for both. You see, most of us are struggling even to give it to the church, let alone to those that hate us. And yet you've been given the Splogon of God and it is meant for both meanies and species. To bless the meanies, the word for that is protes. There's actually a word for blessing meanies. Isn't that amazing in the Bible that there's actually a whole concept reserved for that which God gives us? If this is living water, then this, you can test it. Oh, are they blessing meanies? Mm, something's wrong with the water. I think it's been contaminated. They are not blessing meanies. So the word is prates, typically translated gentleness. That's the word, gentleness. It's gentleness towards those that oppose, the heavenly attitude towards those that make life difficult, the opposite spirit from this world, the humility and kindness of God toward the untoward. Untoward means eh, not very easy to deal with. So the humility and kindness of God toward the untoward. To bless the species, so we had... To bless the meanies is prates, but to bless the species, there's even a word for that. It's called Philadelphia. Typically in the English, we'd say Philadelphia. But Philadelphia, that's the Greek word for blessing the species. So this is what it means. It's the splogon of the Father toward the saints. It's the burden of heaven for God's people. The Father tear that is turned into a mighty rushing river that flows from the innermost of those that believe. So let's look at to bless the meanies, okay? So this is that concept of what we know as gentleness. However, when I, hear, when I give you the word gentleness, it just means soft to most of you. Uh, that's not what it is in Scripture, though. You see, gentleness, or parates, is the opposite spirit. That's one of the best ways of looking at it. If the world comes at you with hate, what do you do? You respond to them in the opposite spirit. Heaven is opposite of this world. So when someone approaches you with flesh, you approach them with spirit. And they strike you on one cheek, you turn to them the other. They steal from you, you give to them. Uh, who does this? Those that have received the Splogdonian River. You see, we have that river flowing through us, and it functions exactly opposite of the way this world does. So the river of gentleness, we'll call it the opposite spirit. It's softness when struck with hardness, mildness when hit with harshness, and a gentle word when belted with a spiteful word. Gentleness is divine control and governance over the inner man, holding the flesh in check, 
that it not be given voice or strength in the matter. So listen to a couple scriptures about proates. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in proates, correcting those who are in opposition. Those of you that have memorized the scripture know that's typically translated gentleness. And so in proates, correcting those that are in opposition, in an opposite spirit, correct those that are opposite of you. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. You see, God cares about them. And he's caring about them even through your response to them. Just as Jesus showed the care of the Father, the love, the affection, the fatherly tear of God to us, we share the fatherly affection of Jesus and the Father unto a dying world. That's how it works with gentleness. So that they may know the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Paul, again, in, in Galatians, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in, tra- in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of parates, in a spirit that is opposite. Whatever that man may have done to you, this is the church. You have been harmed, but how do you restore? You restore with the opposite of what has been done to you. If you have been belittled, if you have been neglected, if you have been abused in the church, come back to the church with the opposite. If you want to see this thing change, don't grumble and moan and complain about it. But become a living vessel through which God can pour out that which will heal and reestablish what we know as the church of Jesus Christ. Speak evil of no one. Be peaceable, gentle, showing all proates to all men. The meanies. The meanies are, <laughs> they're hard to love. And yet, that's our job. Check your own pockets. Do you have that parates? No, not on yourself. But do you have it? Yeah. You have it by faith in his word. He has given it to us. And so we take it by faith. I have parates. I have everything I will need to respond properly to those that hate. All right, now let's look at to bless the species. Philadelphia, Philadelphia. The river of brotherly affection, typically translated brotherly love. That's why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. And brotherly love, brotherly kindness, but I think that's a hard one for many of us to fully grasp. This is the, the slogan. That's what it is. It's the, it's the heavenly affection of God to us. Jesus being called our brother, so he had Philadelphia for us as he poured out his life and gave it up. This is the messenger's love. This is that which has been carried from heaven to us, and we are that same carrying device. So washing the feet of the saints, that's what it is. It's literally being willing to take that low position with a tear in our eye and say, you know what? I want to serve you the way Jesus served me. Seeking the benefit of those who believe. Laboring to see the body of Christ built strong. This is an exclusive dimension that is aimed towards the brotherhood, that is aimed towards the church. This is a word that we use here. It does not mean you don't care about someone out there. That's called gentleness, prates. This is for us. This is the love of the Father specifically for those that believe. Laboring to see the body of Christ built strong. Carrying those sick with the palsy to the feet of Jesus. Honoring others above yourself. Seeking the profit of the saints, even if it means you go without. It means deep abiding affection for those considered brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. 
Listen to a few scriptures on Philadelphia. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectioned one to another with Philadelphia in honor, preferring one another. There it is. There's our assignment right there. How are you going to do that? You see, we are not built, especially when we've been harmed by the church, but this is a command. Be kindly affectioned. Do you have the splog on? Pour out the splog on today, church. Pour it out. You have it, don't you? We do. We have access to it at the cross. Go to the cross and get filled up afresh, even while you're sitting here. So the moment we're done today, you have splog on to give. Think about those around you. Give to them as Christ has given to you. This is what makes the church the church. But as touching Philadelphia, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. I don't need to talk to you about Philadelphia. You're the church. You have the spirit of God. You have this blog on within you. Why would I need to mention this? Well, unfortunately today, we have to be very clear because the splog on has been dammed up. We may receive it for ourselves, but we're not giving it to others always. Let Philadelphia continue. Let the river flow through you. Let it continue through. Do not dam it up. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned Philadelphia, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. That which stunts, blocks, and dams the rivers of affection. Let's look at seven satanic techniques wielded to hinder the Splognonian flow. So we have a river. Why would we block that river? I'm sure each one of us could come up and give an essay on why in our life there has been hindrance. I have a hunch that you probably have some good reasons of why maybe you've begun to cut off or sever that intimacy and that closeness. You know, I need the truth and I want it preached at me, but look, you can't ask me to, to get any nearer than this. So who's up to no good but Satan? Satan doesn't want this river to flow. He doesn't want this Philadelphia to continue. He doesn't want it to water this church. And I say... Let's not listen to him. Let's allow it to flow freely. Grievance, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment. Yeah, I could just stay with one and we'd probably all be set. When there's a grievance, you know that there's a lot of grievances we have that are just? They're just grievances. I have a lot of just grievances. However, if you hold on to a grievance at any level, I don't care whether it's just or unjust. There's a lot of imagined grievances, by the way. You could, uh, the, the classic illustration of the guy who's trying to put on his coat at the time he's walking out of church and bonks someone in the nose as he's doing it. Doesn't even realize he did it. Now that person has a bloody nose, is looking back on, I, I was punched in church today. And so I was like, really? Who punched you? The pastor? The, pa the pastor punched you? Yeah, they have a second party offense. Now there's a whole group of people, and I can't believe it. It's... It's true, what happened is still wrong, and guess what? If I did punch someone in the nose and didn't know it, when I find out that I did, I go and I make that right. It doesn't matter if you did it on accident, you're still responsible to make it right. But guess what, if you're the one that got punched, hey, go to the cross and get some blog on affection. Go to the cross and find the Philadelphia. Find the gentleness for those that punch you in the nose. You see, God is saying, let it flow through you. Forgive, let it go. You know, there's a proper way to restore in that situation. It doesn't mean we just overlook people punching us in the nose and come up to them again and say, yeah, right here. That's not the way we live. 
However, there is a proper way of bringing health and restoration, and it's letting the river flow. Accusation, criticism, implied responsibility for a problem, fault finding. If you've ever been around criticism, it is very unsavory. There's nothing more unattractive uh, to be around than a critical spirit, and yet we also may be the ones participating in it. And it's, it's a very subtle thing because if you were to look around in a group like this or how we run Ellerslie or how we run this church, would there be reason to criticize? I'll just tell you up front, yes. There would be reasons. You could improve this model. You could do it better. There's a lot of different ideas that if we got together, we said, all right, let it fly. You know, nitpick, do whatever you want. We have all sorts of opportunities for that. However, Splogon does not look for what is wrong. It looks to establish what is right. If I treat my kids with only those things that are wrong in them, and I don't ever fan into flame that which is God is growing up, that which God is strengthening, then what I do is I take the wind out of their sails. I end up with a harshness in my tone towards them instead of a love and an affection which builds them stronger. Do I deal with what's wrong? Absolutely. But there's a proper way, and it includes the river flowing freely. You see, when we correct things, it is never done with criticism or fault-finding. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We are the encouragers and the exhorters, and there's better ways to change things. Number three, irritation and frustration. Shortness of fuse. Mm -hmm. That'll stop up a river pretty quick. Anxiety, words to strike fear, evil words of foreboding and doom. Now, if you go to a marriage, these things are classics in marriage, okay? If you want to talk about how the Splogonian affection is hindered in marriage, well, this could be a study. Right here, all of these, if we were to apply them to a mother's womb and how she carries a baby, how does a woman cut off from her baby? Same exact things. You see, these things are what harden us. They're what stop up the river. So in a marriage, one of the classic things, I remember I had to learn this the hard way uh, when Les and I were first married, our way of handling resources is just very different. Uh, have you ever heard it said that when a man s talks about saving money, that means he didn't spend money? When a woman talks about saving money, that means she found something that is usually $500 and she got it for $250. It's just one of those things that men and women can laugh at. However, when I would see the $250 come out, the way I would handle it was with doom and gloom. Oh, no! It's all over! I would try and say something bigger than life to try and strike fear. I mean, it was actually a technique. If I could strike some form of anxiety in Leslie, I mean, I wasn't, had no clue what I was doing. But if I could strike anxiety in her, then that would cause her to not spend the 250 next time. You know what? All it did was drive a wedge. That's all it did. She was hurt by it. Well, that wasn't what I was trying to do. I was trying to have some good budgeting technique here. It was just, uh, you know, my wisdom. Uh, no, it wasn't effective. It cut off Splogon. You see, these things all will break down the flow one unto the other. Overstatements, extreme statements, words like never and the like. Yeah, never. Who invented that word? Anger, slights, diminishment, harsh, hurtful words, threats of leaving or abandonment. You want to destroy a family, a marriage, a church? Start threatening. You see, those things just don't go over well. Start threatening divorce to your spouse. You're going to notice that intimacy doesn't come as the natural follow-up. 
You start saying, you know, that your kids, you might leave them, you might throw them out on the curb if they continue to behave this way. And guess what? You'll find that intimacy is the next thing hampered. Tears of affection. God feels toward, towards them, do you? So if we were to, now I know that you may not have been hurt specifically in this church, but at the same time, you may have been. The scene of the crime may be right here, but it doesn't matter if it's right here or it's somewhere else. I want you to just think about those in your life that just sort of fall into that category of well, there's a stoppage, there's a dam, and the slog on affection, the, the love of God is not allowed in that direction. No, 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 channel it this way. We, we, we can't give them that love. God feels towards them. He has a splog on that he wants to direct towards them. Are you willing to agree with him and let it go in that direction? Are you willing to feel again? You know that some of us, when we cut this off, we actually end up with a heavy heart. A heart that doesn't feel. And I, we've had Ellerslie students come in and they're like, I don't, I don't really love God. I don't know how to describe it. I esteem him, but I don't, there's no, nothing here. It's just like a lump in my chest. Well, I, I can almost directly put my finger on it and say, well, that's unforgiveness. You see, when you cut off the flow of the river, it leads to a death inside. Because it's not meant to be cut off. Are you willing to unblock the river? Are you willing to forgive? Are you willing to become their advocate rather than their burr? A burr in a saddle? No. Are you willing to be their advocate instead? Are you willing to ache over their life with a father's ache? Are you willing to delight over the imperfect body of Christ? Are you willing to stand over the bassinet like Paul did in Philippi with a tear of fatherly affection and say, I love you, Church of Jesus Christ. I know you're yet unformed, you don't yet have the strength. You don't yet have the ability to truly show back to me that love. But I choose to love you the way God loved me. God loved me when I was a mess. Am I willing to love the church when it is still a mess? That is a very, very good question. If you dig in your own pockets to find that sort of splog on, you're not going to find it. But I can tell you, if you go to the cross, you will. Are you willing to be the channel through which the gentleness and the fatherly affections of God are expressed to this world? Are you willing to be part, a part in making the mother's womb, the marriage, the family, and the church the safest places on earth once again? When the church of Jesus Christ is corrected, did you know what happens? Families are corrected. Marriages are corrected. And mother's wombs are once again safe places. You know, we oftentimes try and handle it politically and try and go right after the mother's womb. Well, how about we become the church? You know, when we, when we in America talk about this whole thing about marriage and, you know, same-sex marriage, and we're all up in arms about the sanctity of marriage, you know how ridiculous it is when Christians have a higher divorce rate than homosexual marriages? Uh, and who's talking about sanctity of marriage? Live it! That'll be your preaching. Live it, Church of Jesus Christ! What's happened to us? How about we deal with first things first? And we start living out Christianity instead of bellyaching about that which isn't Christianity. The three channels of the Splogonian River to unstop. So there is a Splogonian River flowing, and yet it's stopped up in the church. Splogonian affection. That's what we've been talking about. We need to allow that affection to come through. Well, here's another one. Splogonian protection. I want to talk about that now, because when that Splogon is present in us. You know that we will protect the church of Jesus Christ? We will. We'll stand up for each other. 
We will not just dismiss and say, oh, you're having a tough day? Too bad. I have my own issues to deal with. Your issues are my issues. I care. I care the way I, as a father, would care about my children. I care about you. And there's going to be a third one, but I have question marks next to that. Let's talk about Swagonian protection. I, I actually do know what the third one is. Don't worry. <laughs> the Philadelphian phalanx. And this was uh, from one of the members of our church that we were having a men's group quite a while ago. And he brought this illustration up. This is really good. When the Splagonian River flows unhindered, well, then there's a Philadelphian phalanx. A phalanx is a battle formation. I'm going to show it to you. This is, this is amazing. And this is the church. This is excerpted from the Alaskan Park Service official website. No other animal has the defense method of a musk oxen. When danger threatens, they do not run away. Musk, that is a really hard word to say. Musk oxen are known above all else for their clever defense against wolves or other predators. So what would they do? I mean, these guys are pretty stout creatures. They're rather ugly, I have to admit. So I, I hate to liken us to the musk oxen. And just the word is, is not that attractive, but it's probably good for us. When they see danger approaching, musk oxen run together, and they all try to face the threat. If there is one predator, a lone wolf, for example, the defense strategy is to form a line. If a wolf pack surrounds the group, the musk oxen will form a tight circle, all facing outward, forming a phalanx of heads and horns. Calves will hug next to their mothers, that's the young ones, or huddle inside the circle. Occasionally, one musk ox will charge the enemy, but will re quickly rejoin the others. If, that's called missions. If the herd doesn't run, but stays together in a tight defensive formation, their defense is virtually impenetrable. A muskox caught away from the herd or separated from the others is much easier to kill. I'm going to read that line again. A muskox caught away from the herd or separated from the others is much easier to kill. Welcome to modern Christianity. A whole bunch of muskox that aren't really that attracted to standing in line or forming a phalanx with each other. And as a result, we're being picked off by the enemy. Look at this. Those are the pictures. Look at that one on the top left. You see the calves, the young ones in the middle? We care for our little ones. We care for the orphans. We care for the widows. We make special provision in our phalanx. You see, when we have the Splagonian River flowing freely, we actually stand together in a time of difficulty. We got a wolf pack out here. You see, we do not just stand by and say, ah, well, you know what? Wolves are wolves and they'll eat as they eat. We are musk oxen. And we have been commissioned to put on the splogon of God, to stand shoulder to shoulder with each other, and to make sure that we ensure the safety of the body of Christ. But whoso hath this world's goods and sees his brother have need and shuts up his splogon of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? If we shut up the splogon, then John is asking a very simple and direct and rather frank and uncomfortable question. How can you say you have the love of God in you if you shut up the splogon? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So before I said this, the five rules of the Splogonian River, well, now I'm going to have six. So these are the same. It must be kept free-flowing. It must be kept pure. The body of Christ must perpetually maintain water rights to this precious life source, even if in the past they have abused this privilege. Special access ramp must be built and maintained for the poor and the weak. 
And special bottles of this priceless water must be kept in special reserve to be supplied to those who hate, despise, and seek the river's harm. And number six, S-I-W-M-I-L. Is that enough for you? So that means something. But once I saw it, I was like, huh. Uh, sawmill. Okay, so this is the sawmill. So this is part of what makes a river work. This is, this is amazing. This is really good. The three channels of Spogonian River to unstop. Remember how I had question marks on the third one? Spogonian affection, Spogonian protection, Spogonian correction. Ah, we don't want that. Remember how I said when we were going, when the church goes south, what happens? And you're thinking, oh, we start kicking people out. And, well, actually, when the church's function as it ought, it stands as muskox, and those that want to come in and harm are not allowed to harm. You see, we love people too much to allow either our fellow muskoxen to be harmed or that which is masquerading as a muskoxen to think that they're doing fine. In other words, there's something known as correction. Do you know that every child needs to be corrected? And if they're not, it's called the rod of correction. And it drives foolishness out of the heart. Do you know that in a church of Jesus Christ, when the splogon is flowing freely, did you know that we actually care about each other? And there is actually correction as well? I know that's a very unattractive concept, but it's a statement of love and splogon. So the ancient sawmill. A sawmill, I don't know if you guys have ever seen them. Like, I used to study American history, and so the sawmill was like one of these interesting things. We had the big water wheel, and it could then, you know, through its, its different ways that the gears would move, it actually turn a saw, a saw blade. And it radically altered American commerce. So all those uh, mountain places, you know, up where the, there was forests, I mean, it was amazing what they could do. What could you do with a sawmill? You can make lumber. What could you do with lumber? You can build houses. So the reason I like this is, is because it's a great picture of the way the church of Jesus Christ works. We need to be built. Well, what do we need? We need lumber. Well, how are you going to get lumber? You need a sawmill. Well, how are you going to make a sawmill work? You know what you need to make a sawmill work? You need water. You need a rushing rapids sort of water. You could say a waterfall as well, which is just as good. Powered by the flow of a mighty river, the water's power would be harnessed by a water wheel that would translate the great strength of the water into the turning of a cutting blade, a saw. Now, let's admit, for those of you that have gotten near this saw being handled improperly, the last thing you want us to do is bring up a saw in church. You've got to be kidding. Not the saw. And yet, I'm going to say that that saw is meant to help us, not harm us. So there's a big water wheel and a little house. And that's the church. Right there. I just gave you a picture of the church. It has this, the water wheel, which is catching the on. And what is it doing? It never stops the river. But it harnesses, it gets the power and the strength of the river to function as the church for affection, for protection, for correction. So the two ingredients of a sawmill, a mighty river, and there's a house through which to capture and let loose the strength of the river. The house doesn't stop up the river. It captures and harnesses the strength of the river and lets it keep going. Well, that's us. We're changed by the river. There's a saw. And it's slicing and dicing. It's building the body of Christ into a holy temple, unto a full maturity to showcase the nature of God. What builds the house? Well, you see, if we're going to build a house, we need some lumber. So how do we cut this lumber? 
Well, we need the, the saw to turn. Well, how are you going to turn this huge saw? You try in your own strength to, to turn it. You can't do it. You need something that is stronger than you. You need the river. So the turning of the saw, the preparation of the lumber. So what builds the house? Well, the turning of the saw. Well, what turns the saw? The power of the river. Well, so what unleashes the river? The piercing of the side. Right, now, this is where it's a little uncomfortable, but very important. What started this river in the first place? Suffering. Dying. A spear in a side. Uh, there's something about suffering that is imperative to this river's free movement. If you reject suffering, if you bottle up that river and say, I am not willing to give it because you've been hurt, you're missing the whole point of the river. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water, letting the river flow. I don't know how many of you in here have been harmed in the church. And I'm not going to have us raise our hands. I don't know that that would accomplish anything. I'm just going to guess that it's probably a high percentage of us. It doesn't take much. I mean, if I were to ask you how many of you were harmed in your family, it doesn't mean that problems still linger. It just means that there's been hurt there. There's been some scar tissue. And some of us have not walked through our scar tissue effectively. And as a result, we've got a whole buildup of scar tissue. It's almost like a beaver's dam. And as a result, there's not a lot coming out of us towards others. Well, are we willing to allow that dam to break? Oh, what do you mean by that, Eric? I'm not exactly sure. I don't know what it even means in my life. All I know is my answer is yes. My answer is yes, I am willing to have those affections. And I want to feel at the level you feel. And I want to serve the way you would serve. I want to wash feet the way you would wash feet. I do not want to think about my scar tissue. I want to think about your glory. Unless this channel opens up, Eric doesn't live. And unless all of our channels open, the church doesn't live. You see, it's life that marks us as believers. It's not just water. It's not just tears. It's God tears. It's God water. It's the liquid of heaven that marks us. It's called love. That's how you'll know us. By our love, get this, for one another. That's how they will know us. Is that how they know us today? Letting the river flow. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. By the way, uh, if you remember two weeks ago, I talked about the city of God, which is known as the Bride of Christ, the New Jerusalem. That's us. So there's a river. Uh, the, the streams whereof shall make glad the church of Jesus Christ, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. Where does God live? Where does God tabernacle? What's the holy place? Paul says, do you not know that your body is his home? You see, this river is supposed to flow through the new Jerusalem, which is the city of God, which is the bride of Christ. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart. By the way, that's pretty impressive when lame men leap. And the tongue of the dumb sing. It's not just the tongue of the dumb will speak. It's that they will sing. 
For in the wilderness, why is that happening? Why is the layman leaping? Why is the tongue of the dumb singing? For in the wilderness, the most unlikely place for water, shall break out, waters shall break out in streams in the desert. Well, dear Lord Jesus, we have ourselves that wilderness. It's called the Church of Jesus Christ, and we're in desperate need of some leaping and some singing and some waters in the wilderness. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall be in that day. What day do you think it's talking about in the book of Zechariah? It's talking about the cross. And in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea in the summer and the winter shall it be. There is heavenly liquid coming. That's the promise of the Old Testament over and over again. Heavenly liquid is coming, a fountain, a stream, a river, call it what you may. But it's heavenly liquid and it's coming on that day. There will be enough of it to make up a river. It's not just a little trickle, it's not just a little drip. It's something that makes up a river. And most of us, when we start, start talking about a river, we're not talking about a little drip. If it's big enough to be called a river, that means there's a lot of it. And it's constant in its supply. If there was a little gusher and it came out and dribbled down the road and then stopped, we would call it a flash flood. But we're not going to call it a river. A river has a source, and that source will never end in this case. It's a river that never runs dry because its source is God's own heart. There will be enough of it to make a river. This river will bring joy and celebration. It will make the lame man leap. It will cause the dumb tongue to break forth in song. It will water the desert. It will be for sin and uncleanness. And the water in this river is living water. What's the difference between water and living water? The difference is very simple. Blood is in living water. You see, this river is living because of blood. Because of the suffering of the Son of God, it lives. And it continues to live because it flows through us and through the sawmill and out the other side. And it's because we, too, give of our life. We're willing to have grief. We're willing to have suffering. We're willing to have sorrows. That life would come forth and the house of God would be built. I know, those sorrows and those griefs are what we usually pull back from. But with every wound that you've had, I want you to freshly bring it to God and say, God, through this wound, could you bring life? You see, when you have a wound, it's the perfect release valve for the life of God within you. Technically, you know how that life comes out? Through the point of the spear. That's how it comes out. How did it come out of Jesus? It was a spear that went into his side. How does it come out of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ? You just get a little spear into our innermost and what will gush out. You see, it's suffering, it's difficulty, it's pain, it's trials that will bring out that which God has poured into us. That's his great secret. We want to cut off the difficulty. We want to cut off the suffering. But the suffering is essential to the living water. There is living water that's supposed to flow out of the side of those who believe. Are you willing to let it? We're the perfect candidates for this church of Jesus Christ because we have a lot of wounds. So let's allow God to take those wounds and out of him, out of them, bring forth living water. Rule number six, S-I-W-M-I-L. 
Suffering is what makes it live. That's what we need. And most of us don't want a saw in Christianity. Oh, beware of the saw. The saw is helping build the house. There is an intrinsic challenge that we face, being the body of Christ. We need to be allowing the river to flow freely from us to others and even those that have harmed us. We need to be willing to stand shoulder to shoulder together even with people that we're not exactly sure if we can trust and if they're going to have our back. Because in the past, maybe they haven't had our back. And we need to function with correction, which is marked. By the way, there's no, no such thing as correction done properly that isn't done out of the affections of God. If you ever see a parent disciplining a child out of anger, rage, frustration, that's not Splogonian affection. But when a child is disciplined properly or corrected properly, it is done out of a fatherly splogon. That's how it works here too. It's safe. And so if we have correct discipline, if we have correct protection, if we have correct affection, we will live. And there will be living waters that flow through us and out of us unto this world. The place of greatest danger is also the place of greatest safety. Where do you run in your time of need? To a symbol of death? Well, that's odd. Mm -hmm. That's where we go. That place of greatest danger where you have to die, where you will also be pierced with a sword, where you also will experience great grief. Cross is a hard place to live. It's a hard place to preach from. It's a hard place to tell the world that this is where they need to come. Come unto the splinters. Come and die. Yeah, there's a lot of grief when you stand there. And yet, that place of greatest danger is also the place of greatest safety. And suddenly the church becomes the church. A family becomes a family. A marriage becomes a marriage. And a mother's womb becomes the safest place on earth for a baby once again. You see, we function as the church. We must risk the pain. And that's the great challenge that's inerrant in this is if we want to be the church, we need to know up front that it's going to be painful. I don't know if you've counted that cost yet. I, I've gone through that multiple times over. If I'm going to preach the truth, that means the same truth that I'm preaching is going to be leveraged against me to harm me. I know that to truly love, there is pain. Have you ever heard that statement? I think it was by C.S. Lewis that many of us stop loving because we're afraid of the loss and the pain that will come. If you love someone that's, that's dying, what do you do? You naturally will pull away. Why? To self-preserve. However, that's not love. Love is being willing to experience the pain of loss, but you love with everything in you, even though it's going to be more painful when they die. That's what love is. Love knows that there will be greater pain. You want to love as God loves. You want the splogon, the splogon of heaven to once again work here. We all sort of sign up to the little checklist that says, are you willing to suffer pain? And we say, yes. I'm willing that Jesus Christ and his love would be evidence in this world. Our final scripture. Isaiah 53. We started with the whole chapter of Isaiah, and I just want to read you a portion. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, we are healed. 
This is his model. It was pain. It was suffering. It was difficulty that allowed the river to come to us. And in a sense, we could say it's by our stripes that this church also can be rekindled. Let's not allow the enemy to have the final say in regards to our view of the church. Let's not allow the enemy to define the terms of Christianity in our generation. Let's allow God to once again rule his body, his way. Yes, it will involve pain. And yes, it's very possible that your toes will still be stepped on in the future. But you have everything you need at the cross. It says, come boldly into the throne of grace where you may obtain mercy. And get this. And grace for help. Splog on. The river of help where you may obtain that grace for help in time of need. We have a time of need. And it's not just once in our life. It's daily. We need grace. We need that river. And we need it now. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ell. E-R-S-L-I-E dot com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.